On this bonus episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Trevor Rabin's Can't Look Away. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Boatler, and on this bonus episode of Progressive Palaver, Paul and I are going to take a sidestep from the Yes catalog and consider Trevor Rabin's 1989 release, Can't Look Away. And while it is a sidestep, Joe, it's not that much of a sidestep musically when you really consider it. It really, really is not. And one of the things I'm always looking for, I strive for context, some sort of greater take-home message in all of this. And dare I say it, I think one of the take-home messages here is that as fantastic as Trevor Rabin is, and as much as I love what Trevor Rabin does, Trevor Rabin translates much better when he has a strong producer. Kaboom. Exactly. We can end the episode right now. We can That's it. it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I tried to word that very, very carefully. When you listen to this album, it's relationship between the songs on Big Generator and the, the four songs on Union. I mean, it's it's obvious. But this sounds so much better. It does. It does. And why is that? Because a guy by the name of Bob Ezrin. Has Bob Ezrin ever done anything that didn't sound fantastic? I haven't found it yet. I haven't found it. All the way back in the Alice Cooper days, even. Goodness gracious. So funny you should mention Alice Cooper. I'll take a sidestep from this really quickly. Last night I was doing the second of my Solo Asia episodes. So one of the albums that I covered was Arena. There are two guitarists on there. One of them... Elliot Randall was actually Alice Cooper's music director for a three-year stint. Wow. And the other guy, a guy by the name of Aziz Ibrahim, happens to be the guitarist for the H band. That's lowercase h, as in Steve Hogarth. Yes. Wow. That's so, cool. I thought, yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty awesome. And as I was preparing for this, in addition to listening to Can't Look Away, I listened to Trevor's Live in L.A., which, while it was released in 2003, was recorded on the tour for this this album. I know we listened to that album on our way to Austin. It's almost two years ago now. I had never realized that that was actually recorded on this tour. I thought it was yep. something that he did later, because I remember it sounding amazing. Even when he did some of the Yes covers, I remember it sounding better than when we saw Yes. And yeah. So I figured he was just doing it later and he had more uh, effort. Wow. Wow. No, it was it was recorded in December of 1989 at the Roxy, it, although it wasn't released until 2003. But what's interesting about that is if you look at the the band he performed with, it was Trevor, Lou Molino, as you would imagine. Right. A guy by the name of Jim Simmons on bass. And Mark Mancina, or Mancina, I, he says it somewhat differently on the thing, doing keyboards and background vocals. We mentioned Mark last episode, in the, in the Union episode, because Mark has not only a production credit, but a writing credit on Miracle of Life. Wow. There it is. It's coming full circle. Two other interesting things. The disc opens up with cover-up. 
but they have the intro to lift me up on there. Huh. So the the sort of drum pattern starts and it, it sounds like, you know, everyone's coming on stage through that. And then they have the big flourish portion before they go into cover up, which is wow. interesting. That is interesting. And then at this point, and he had probably and he had probably been doing this with yes as well. The intro to make it easy is now attached onto the front of changes. Oh, okay. Well, you, I thought they changed it. They put that on top of um, "Owner of a Lonely Heart," which I was. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe. I'm sorry. It's it's. You're right. It's "Owner of a Lonely Heart." Yeah, I was never really quite fond of that, but you know, whatever. That's fine. That's fine, Trevor. You be you. But but for me, it was it was really that the part of "Lift Me Up" that was there. So as early as 1989, that particular yeah. piece of the music was in place. I just found it to be a very convenient companion piece to this. So Trevor Rabin's Can't Look Away was released in July of 1989 on the label Electra. And this is interesting. The producer on the wiki page is listed as Trevor Rabin and Bob Ezrin, although the CD itself clearly states Bob Ezrin and Trevor Rabin. Take what you want to from that. The personnel on this album, Trevor Rabin played lead vocals, guitar, guitar synthesizer, keyboard, bass, background vocals. Lou Molino played drums on most of the tracks. Alan White played drums on two of the tracks. A guy by the name of Denny Fungheiser played drums on one of the track. It's almost like we could play Spot the Drummer with this. Basil the Drum Machine played tracks on, uh, on several as well. And then there's a whole host of background vocalists including Bob Ezrin on two of them, which I find to be somewhat in interesting. The track listing is I Can't Look Away, Something to Hold On To, which was the single, Sorrow, Your Heart, Cover Up, Promises, I can never say this next one, Etoile Noir is what I'm going to stab at, Eyes of Love, I Didn't Think It Would Last, Hold On To Me, Sludge, I Miss You Now, and The Cape. So this is what we have in front of us. Now, Paul, the, the genesis for this particular episode, this bonus episode, came as we were discussing Big Generator and Union. And I believe it was probably you who made the comment that, in a lot of ways, this album is a better representation of this era, Trevor. <laughs> and uh, so I, I thought it might be fun just to, to sit down and, and talk about it, because it the as we started in our, our intro here, the the parallels here are, are just striking. Yeah, and I think one of the things that inspired the, the comment was as I was listening to the songs from Big Generator and then particularly the Trevor songs from Union, I thought to myself, you know what would be much better than this? Listening to Can't Look Away. That would be much better. <laughs> and there was a great interview with Ed Shockey, of all reasons, that I found on, on YouTube. It's shocking, really. Yeah, with Trevor Rabin, it, you know, when he was talking about the release of this. But he mentioned in the interview that, you know, he was always really trying to write a solo album. He was shopping around, and that's how he kind of ended up hooking up with Chris Squire and Alan White and Tony Kay. And he mentions that all of the songs that he was writing for his solo album at, at the time ended up being on 90125. And then they did The Big Generator. And then he goes and does this, and then he does the songs that are Union, which clearly he was already writing. As you said, he was yeah. putting some of the intros into the tour. So, 
we really start to have this arc of Trevor Rabin's songwriting. And I dare say, I think it peaks with I Can't Look Away. It's ironic then that he wanted to do a solo album, but the solo album fits in absolutely perfectly with what he was doing with Yes. It's not like when Sting left the police and went off and did his sort of jazz fusion-y thing, which wouldn't have fit in with the police. Okay, I, I find I can't help myself, so I'm going to say something that's blasphemous and is going to generate all sorts of bad press for us, probably. But much in the same way that ABWH has become canon, even though it officially is not, while the personnel here is clearly not canon, and so it can't be canon musically, and the fact that it's so much Trevor, and look at look at talk, which is, some could argue, the same way. Musically, this is probably as close to canon as you're going to get. Well, yeah, and when you think about the fact that Alan White plays on this... There you go. You know, he's part of it. And Lou Molino, who is now... Uh, has a stronghold in the drum corps of the ARW version of Yes. I mean, come on. You're there. Let's put it in. Well, and that's that's why we're doing this bonus episode, Paul. We're calling it a bonus episode, so we're not putting it in the canon. Okay. But we're putting it on the bookshelf right next to the canon. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I was uh, going to say about this, Trevor obviously is phenomenally talented. And the fact that he virtually does everything on this record. And as much as I enjoy his playing, and I really, really do, I really think I enjoy his vocals more. You tell me, we've had a lot of discussion on on the Palaver, both in episodes and, and on the chat recently, with regards to gang vocals. There are a lot of different people singing back up here, and so it, it I, I think that adds just enough texture that it it doesn't come across quite the same way. I think it's a Am huge I wrong? difference. I, I agree with you. I think it's a huge difference on this album compared to what we hear on Union. In Union, there are, there are just too many Trevors on, on the Union songs. <laughs> well, there and are a lot of Johns, too, but... There are, there are I, but not enough, I don't think. I think they brought in John and said, yeah, sing, sing a track or two on here, which is great. But, you know, they're singing over top of 40 Trevors, singing the same <laughs> thing. And on talk... It's just awful. Like, I just will get to that in the in the appropriate time. Because I, I was okay with it. I'll be honest with you. I was really okay with it until I started listening to talk the other night. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, you almost can't even hear the rest of the mix over all of the vocals <laughs> and some of the choruses there. But I think here, I mean, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six. You've got at least six other people singing with Trevor. And, it, and I'm sure they're not singing on all of the tracks, but it's just managed in a much better way. And I, I'm going to tip the hat to Bob Ezrin for that one. It's just better I, I, on this. I think we have to. Now, one of the interesting things, back in the day when this came out in the late 80s, you, Paul, were all over this record. I have memories, whether it's accurate or not, of you listening to this I'm not going to say constantly, but but a lot. I seem to remember you had a particular fixation with sorrow. And ironically, I never really bought into it. I was very suspicious of this album, probably just because I was in my stupid, angry young man phase. And it's it's kind of a shame because I would say even up to the start of the palaver, 
I, I don't know that I had given this album really the chance nor the credit it deserves, which is where the irony comes in, given the, how I'm gushing about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> But you were in you were in from the beginning. What was it that that sort of tipped you off that this was worth it? Well, it's an interesting story, Joe. I first became aware of this in my days driving around the greater Bucks and Montgomery County areas delivering newspapers for the Montgomery County Record and Daily Intelligencer as my uh, summer job. And I listened to a lot of radio. This was about 29 years ago now because the, actually the release date was July 10th. So there was, I think, a phone call interview on one of the morning shows on those radio stations, and they talked about the song Sorrow, as I guess that was going to be the single or whatever. I heard it, and I thought, wow, that's just so that's just so different. Like, I was not expecting any of that, and it didn't really hit me too hard, but I was a huge Trevor Rabin fanboy at the time, so I had to get it. And <laughs> when I bought the record, it's funny. I found it to be somewhat suspect as well. The way that I came off of Big Generator, and even though Big Generator, to be fair, didn't really stand the test of time with me as much as I would have loved it to, it was such an inspiring album for me when it came out. It was, in a way, transformative to the way that I looked at music and the way I started listening to music and how I got into Yes. So with that giant wave of momentum, it was probably hard to examine Can't Look Away with a completely open mind, and I thought it was a little bit too commercial, a little bit too poppy, what whatnot. Uh, however, when you're in college and you're spending a lot of time with women, there are times you will listen to things more often than you wouldn't normally listen to because it's palatable to them. And at the time, this record connected well with the opposite sex compared to everything else that I was listening to. <laughs> you mean I, close to the edge wouldn't play well with the women back in the day? It wasn't happening. Even <laughs> so this got a little extra time in the cassette deck in the car because it was agreeable to all parties. The other piece, and this is kind of ironic as well, Joe, I was in a music appreciation class and we had to do a report or a paper on a song and we had to analyze a song, a hit song, a pop song from front to back. And the professor said, pick a song that you're not going to mind hating when it you're done because you're gonna listen to the song so many times and you're gonna know it so well that you're probably never gonna wanna hear it again. So I picked Sorrow because I already didn't really like it that much. And I thought, <laughs> no worries. So I listened to it a hundred times and I wrote this whole paper. And wouldn't you know, by the time I handed in that paper, I was a giant fan of the song Sorrow. It was my favorite one on the album. And all of a sudden I got even more interested and I started enjoying Can't Look Away tenfold. So it was a very strange journey for me to, to really liking this album. And then I got to tell you, after picking it up, after listening the last, uh, couple weeks to like big generator and abwh and union and talk i put this <laughs> on yesterday and i was just like oh man this is so good I love it. as you were talking i was reminded of of actually what drove me back towards this as well even before you know at, at the start of the palaver as a whole so as you pointed out, I had purchased the live in L.A. and we had listened to that on the way down to Austin in November of 
2016, so I had had it probably shortly before that. And the reason I had I had really purchased that was for the the yes the couple of yes tracks. I kind of wanted to get a feel for how you know Trevor did those things live. And I want to say that it was the song "I Can't Look Away" was sort of like the tumbler falling in that. I hadn't listened to this album in a really, really long time. I didn't even know where my copy was at the time, to be honest with you. (laughs) I had to go searching for it when I finally wanted to hear it. The song, I Can't Look Away, just, I remember it blowing me out of the water on the live album. Like, I got to hear this. And so that's when I went and uncovered my my physical copy. And it's been fantastic. Mm. That's funny about Sorrow. Like I said, I, I remember you just, playing sorrow all the time but I, I i don't know if i knew or just forgot the fact that you had to do a paper on it it really became a center point of of a lot of things in fact when i walked into the reception at my wedding that was the song that we chose to have playing well while we're talking about sorrow i'll just say the funny thing about sorrow we've talked about this a lot and ken has been uh, one who has brought this up many times when we've discussed the rush catalog uh, sorrow is a terrific example i believe of soundtrack dissonance. There's this yeah. very upbeat, happy tune with the lyrics being about the struggle of, of love and and trying to uh, raise a family with no money and all of that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, think about the uh, the chorus in that. Just the, the the vocal melody is is soaring and he's singing, your heart will break, your heart will bring you sorrow. <laughs> I mean, you can't help but just want to get up and dance during this song, right? Yeah, I, I think that that is an, an excellent uh, case of soundtrack dissonance for certain. I have come around, obviously, through you, I'd heard the song a lot, even if I didn't quite understand why you were quite so fixated with it. I love it now. But the only thing is, what's with the outro? You know, it's is that like just a little yeah. Trevor squeaking out there? <laughs> it's yeah, the strangest you know, sort of thing. So, like, here's the funny thing, and and I've always wondered about this with Trevor, too uber talented, probably demos things, you know, three or four times before it actually says, okay, now let's go in. So you wonder what's just laying around the scraps of, hey, let's use this for this part, or hey, let's do that. And then the other part here, you've done a much better job of of connecting your lore and improving your lore, Joe, than I'm just happy to be ignorant. But I don't know when he started doing soundtracks. I want to say it was after talk. It was like he fell off the face of the earth and then like... Yep. Three years later, he was on every soundtrack available (laughs) with some of these instrumentals and some of these little funny parts in between, you know, like at the end of Sorrow. Like that is his internal, I'm going to be a soundtrack writer and and composer screaming through all of the other stuff that he's doing. That's that's an excellent point, Paul. I hadn't really thought of it that way. When when I found my physical copy of this, what I had also discovered was that I only have like the bottom part of the case so i don't have the booklet with all of the information so honestly again until i started preparing for for this discussion this morning i i don't know that i was aware that alan white played on this at all i just naturally assumed it was all lou and so i was once i heard or figured out that alan was on here i was sort of paying attention as i was listening to this Maybe this is premature. Maybe this is an emotional statement. But I kind of dig Lou Molino, and I'm looking forward to the ARW studio album because Lou sits perfectly in between Bruford and White. There's there's a little bit more 
life to lose drum parts on this. I like yeah. it a lot. He seems to just quite fit in. His drumming is is uh, terrific and fantastic on the song of the day, which is, of course, Sorrow. So do you want to go through song by song or just kind of hit the highlights? and, and... Oh, wait, Let's hit the highlights. We've already skipped around a little bit. Yeah, the go ahead, look away part, the, the intro is terrific. I remember always thinking that after that huge intro, and it just kind of settled into the you know, as I was like, that's it. Like, that's that's as far as we've come, and then we're just getting that. But, um, <laughs> and that was my first initial reaction to it. And, I, you know, again, I, I was a fanboy. I probably had gigantic expectations. I think it's terrific now. I think the dynamics are wonderful. And it has that, at least for me, that certain aspect of progressive rock where I have no, I have no idea what we're singing about and I don't care. I'm just enjoying it all <laughs> and loving it to bits. <laughs> and I, I really like the arrangement too. I love, especially the outro arrangement where there's the, the echoes on the can't look away, can't look away. You know? mm -hmm. It's terrific and it's no surprise. There are three writing credits on this and Bob Ezrin is present in the writing and everything. For me, I'd have to say Cover Up is probably another highlight. The guitar and the vocals on this to just be totally spot on and solid. I totally agree. It has a certain power to it. As Trevor Horn said, Trevor Rabin likes to sing about love. Sometimes he just really, <laughs> he wants, he just, he gets, I don't want to say aggressive, but his delivery is a lot punchier. And cover up, I think, is is one of those. And I, I really, really respond to that. There is a certain amount of power in this whole track. And this is an Alan White track. So perhaps from the Flash perspective, there's not a lot happening here. Certainly, Alan White is making that X factor that he can deliver present. Another highlight for me is the track Eyes of Love, which oh, yeah. is definitely not one I ever think of offhand when I think of this whole album but goodness gracious the guitars in this out this track are just monstrous i love it i'm totally on board with you uh, i think it's it's fantastic i don't know that i like promises that much but it does have a huge anthemic chorus when you have these sort of incongruities and and now since you said it i can't get it out of my head are we seeing this soundtracker coming out he's not afraid to go over the top that's not something that you would want to do on a Yes album, for instance, I don't think. But perhaps here it works well. The funny part about Promises is it has this, at least for me, somewhat an annoying musical bed for the verses that is oh too familiar to I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner. Oh, geez, which, I hadn't heard that, but... <laughs> which is, yeah, just with that, that really nasty, like, giant reverby, slappy kind of snare, and then the, just the keyboard pads. Just to be fair, I do not like the Foreigner song, I Want to Know What Love Is. It actually evokes an, evo an emotional response from me of whatever depressive gene lives inside of all of us. It's almost like a laser beam to that gene. And boom, um, <laughs> it's like I can't even get through the rest of the day because I just want to just go weep in the corner. But I will say, I agree with you, the chorus, the keyboards come out and they're rich and there's this great stuff, this big giant guitar and the vocals. This is a kind of a half and half song for me. 
Paul, I need to go back and course correct. I think I may have spoken incorrectly about the live in L.A. bit. The lift me up is is on the start of cover up, not on the start of I can't look away. Uh, OK, I, I think I misspoke there. So, OK, that makes a little lower, more sense, though. Yeah. Lore keepers at home. The live in L.A. opens up with cover up, which has the intro to lift me up. Something to hold on to was mm. was the first single from this. Has a video which I meant to look at and I haven't had a chance oh, it's, yet. It's beauty. It's a beauty. Man. Is it? <laughs> going crazy. I love it. <laughs> I'm just like it, it's it is it is the perfect like late '80s rock video, and it's all just Trevor. Like there's no one else. He's, <laughs> sometimes he's just really rocking out, and sometimes he's doing really stupid stuff. Like it looks like it was a lot of fun doing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You got to check that out. There are a couple snippets in here. If I remember correctly, Love will find a way redux, right? Yeah, for sure. He uses that 12-string guitar sound right off of the blueprint of Love will find a way. There's no mistake that the production was sort of meant to say, hey, guys, don't forget about this awesome guy. And, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Well, and as we pointed out, too, Trevor doesn't seem to have a problem of taking a little bit here and putting it over there either. So... It's what artists do, right? One great example is Tom Petty. He puts together the Traveling Wilburys, and I have my lore wrong there, I'm sure. But he's a part of that, and there's a very specific sound. And what does he do? He turns around and basically puts like the next two albums that he makes is just, just like <laughs> ripping that sound off. So, you know, it's definitely... I think it's okay to do that in music. You, you find a formula or a sound that you like, and that becomes your sound. You know, you talk about Rush. They have a couple of albums that generally have the same sound, and then they grow and move yeah. somewhere else. I don't necessarily think it's a party foul, but it's it's certainly worth noting. And while I don't know that's something to hold on to, well, I don't know. Maybe it is a highlight for me. I, I do really like the song. I still can't decide how I feel about it because there are other songs I like more. I Can't Look Away, Sorrow, and, and Cover Up. I'm still surprised they didn't track list with I Can't Look Away at the end. It seems like such a fantastic way to end something like this. Yeah, but. yeah definitely either opener or an ending for sure. Yeah. The one track I didn't really care for that much was I didn't think it would last. It's odd because here we've got an Ezrin writing credit here, but I thought that it was perhaps a little obvious for what I'm looking for from, from Trevor. You know, this chorus it gets a little bit into the talk zone. This is the stay for another day, right? With the acoustic guitars getting really big. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. That To me, that's what saves the song, because I don't think it's quite as over the top. If we were going to trim this album by a couple tracks, Joe, I could get on board with eliminating this one. I've become very sensitive after the Rush section on album length. This album is 55 minutes. I don't find myself wanting to skip things, but... If we were to sort of trim this down into the 45-minute range, I think we could do that without breaking too much of a sweat. This is great. If nothing else, the production and the songs and the whole package here is provocative, right? 29 years later, and we're still not sure how we feel about, you know, something (laughs) to hold on to, right? We're still trying to figure it out. The only other note I have of some import, I've got a note here on Hold On To Me that has a beautiful vocal with a all-capital huge chorus. And then Sludge, I have, is much better live. Okay, lot, lots to talk about here. Sludge, <laughs> the cape, Antoine Noir, is that, Noir, is that how we're saying that? To me, they belong into this as much as Clap belongs on the S album. Like, they're great, they're fine, and I love Trevor playing guitar and acoustic guitar and all this stuff. 
And to me, this is where I started thinking, yeah, this is more like his quick demos of what I could do for your movies. Go listen to, right. you know, these tracks on my solo album. Hold On To Me has a sort of a Pink Floydish kind of feel to it. It's got the do-do-do-do and the keyboards and even the the way that the the vocal line is, it's kind of reminiscent to some maybe us and them or part of animals. And in the Ed Shockey interview that I just listened to, Trevor Rabin was talking about a song from one of the Rabbit albums sounding similar to us and them. And he was very clear to say that that Rabbit album came out prior to Dark Side of the Moon, I suppose. But that he in no way would ever imagine that Pink Floyd had any way, shape, or form been influenced by Rabbit. But he mentioned that there was that, <laughs> there was sort of that, that similarity. And it strikes me that Hold On To Me sort of has that same sort of Floydish kind of similarity to it. What do you think, Bob Ezrin? What's the conversation like if you're trying to get him to produce your album? Like, how does it even go? Like, he just walks <laughs> in the room and sits down, right? Does he even say anything? You know? <laughs> just sits there with his arms crossed, like, basically, what are you going to do for me in this yeah. situation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Bob Ezrin's partial discography here. A lot of Alice Cooper, surprisingly. Early on. Yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, he did Berlin's Count Three and Pray. He did Catherine Wheel, which you and Colby talk about a lot. I didn't know that. Wow. Peter Gabriel, he did the first one, and he did a couple of individual tracks with Peter. He did David Gilmore's About Face. Mm, that's pretty tasty. He did a Jane's Addiction album. Really? He did Kansas in the Spirit of Things. That's interesting. He did four Kiss albums. Julian Lennon, Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile. Oh, he also did The Division Bell and The Endless River. He's deep in, in with uh, David Gilmore. Taylor yeah. Swift. And I think that's about it for the notables. But that, I mean, Bob Ezrin, what a, what a freaking monster that guy is. And interestingly, a Toronto, Canada native. Yeah. So interesting that, you know, he never worked his way around to our favorite power trio. He is a fellow Juno award winner, though. Well, no doubt. <laughs> But Bob Ezrin, thank you very much for the, the beauty that is Can't Look Away. Given what we have heard with Big Generator and with what we're going to hear with talk when we get to that, and given some of the sort of disparate songwriting snippets and, and parts and bits that we've, we've covered here, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that it was Bob's steadying hand that sort of balanced all of that out on this album because this album is extraordinarily palatable and i don't say that in a bad way i say that in a, a very complimentary way yeah it's strange that at the end of this conversation i'm going to say that from 90125 all the way to talk my favorite album is 90125 and my second favorite is can't look away um i think speaks <laughs> volumes to what you're saying there there's no doubt that Trevor Rabin's incredibly talented, and by no way do I mean to take anything away from him in any way by saying he's better when he's he's got someone to refine him. But when you look at the people who are doing the refinement, we're talking about Trevor Horn and Bob Ezrin, right? Like he is working <laughs> with two giants of record production, and they are taking 
someone who is incredibly talented and, you know, in some ways genius, and they are refining it into what its true potential can be. I was thinking about this when I was when I was listening to some of these interviews with Trevor Rabin, because every time I read something that says how Trevor Rabin single handedly removed Yes from obscurity and brought them back to commercial success. I'm like, no, it wasn't really single handedly. But he says things like all of the, the songs that I was writing, you know, for my solo album became 90125. I'm like. Yeah, well, you know, I can't help but think about that original demo where you don't want to go dancing, <laughs> right? And, and um, <laughs> you know, really, like we've always said, it, you know, yes is best when it's, you know, they're, they're, the whole is better than the sum of the parts. I remember hearing all the stories about how Trevor was looking for collaborators and looking to go here, looking to go there, shopping his songs around everybody. I mean, the industry was hell bent on getting Trevor Rabin signed somewhere. And all I could think of is they kept passing around that demo of Owner of a Lonely Heart and nobody was biting <laughs> on it because they were like, oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine all of these A&R people and record producers going, oh, gosh, I can't believe we missed that, you know, Owner of a Lonely Heart. How did we miss that? But then you get the demo and you're like, they must have been like, what happened to this song? Why wasn't this the demo that I got? <laughs> Well, and, you know, that for me, sort of the most resonating part of that Trevor Horn interview is the fact that, you know, Trevor Horn himself said, look, that that demo wasn't great, but that chorus, he said, I heard the chorus and I knew that was a hit. We just needed to sort of fix everything else. How does he see through all of that and say, there's your nugget? Yeah, there there's your biggest yes hit ever. And to the point where he had to beg them to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Another interesting side story that you'll hear as you listen to the live album then, we talked in the 90125 episode about how Owner of a Lonely Heart doesn't usually translate well live. It translates pretty well in Trevor's Live in L.A. album. So I'll be curious to sort of hear your thoughts on that. I will just say to to give another feather in, in Lou's cap and not to take anything away from Alan at all. But when they come out of the make it easy part and you've got that drum fill into Owner of a Lonely Heart, yeah. Lou kicks it out of the park, man. Wow. Nice. It's, nice. It is hot. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. One uh, right. one other one other tidbit that I forgot to mention earlier, Joe, is that you not you definitely need to seek out the something to hold on to video because not okay. only is it a blast and it looks like it was a hell of a lot of fun to record. But it was actually nominated for a Grammy in 1990 as best video in the short form. So was it really? So <laughs> I'm sure if Trevor Rabin was a Canadian, he would have received at least one Juno for this. <laughs> but nominated for a Grammy in 1990. That is exceptional. I will definitely have to uh, to look out for that. Paul, that's pretty much what I have to to, uh, to finish up with, with Can't Look Away. Do you have any sort of closing thoughts beyond the fact that everyone apparently needs to, to check out the video? 29 years ago and yep. still provocative enough to spend an hour talking about it, Joe. So I'm glad we did Perfect. This. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation on Trevor Rabin's Can Look Away, and we encourage and invite your questions, your comments, and your feedback. We are available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Progpala, P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. 
You can also email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on both Google Play and iTunes, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. I am going to go, hmm, how shall I say, ape shit, I think. <laughs> <laughs>